I am back with David White. David, thanks for joining me. It's a pleasure. So we are already have a series of your poetry in the Waking Up app, which people have absolutely loved. And now you are coming back with uh, yet more work, which is um, derived from your book, Consolations, The Solace, Nourishment, and Underlying Meaning of Everyday Words, which is a book I, I absolutely love. You've given us readings from that book and some marginalia, and these are just fantastic pieces of audio. So I, what I wanted to do here is, is have a conversation around a few of them. I thought we would drop in your uh, sections on friendship, honesty, ambition, and alone, and we could just have a brief conversation about each. But um, perhaps to before we jump in, what was your inspiration for this book? Because it's really just it's a great formula for you as a student of the power of language to just drill down on the significance of specific words here. It was, it, it's the perfect use of your talents as a poet to bring us this kind of prose. Lovely. You're very kind. I think there were, there were two forms of insight in a way. I was in Paris, actually, and uh, I was speaking to my assistant on the phone, uh, my colleague, Julie Quiring has been with me for years, and uh, she was quite excited that I had uh, been invited to write a little philosophical piece for the Observer magazine in England. And uh, the Observer magazine goes out to millions of people on Sunday morning, so it was a lovely, a lovely way of getting a lot of, of listening ears to my work. But then she sounded a little hesitant, and I said, uh, what's the hesitancy? She said, it, it can't be any longer than 300 words. Mm. And I said, I said to myself, you know, I'm half Irish, so half English. The Irish side of me said, it's hardly time to take your breath, you know, never mind accomplish anything that would give anyone any insight, unless you're actually writing poetry. And so I can't remember how we finished the phone call, but I remember clicking it off quite firmly, <laughs> as if to say, well, I don't think I'm going to do that. And uh, anyway, I walked around Paris all day, and then I ended up in a restaurant by myself. And, uh, and I sat down, and I said to myself, what if you could write what you needed to write in 300 words? The other specification was that it had to be a single word title, mm. which I didn't mind, you know. I said, what? what would you write about? And uh, so I asked the, I, I remember asking, uh, asking the waiter if he had uh, any stationery, and, and they did, actually being French. <laughs> and, uh, mm. So he brought out some stationery, and, uh, and I started writing, and I wrote at the top of the page, regret. And uh, I I realized immediately how orphaned that word was and how unfashionable it had become and how I was constantly meeting people who said they had no regrets mm -hmm. and how, how I was constantly asking myself, where had they been all their life if they, if they had no regrets? <laughs> <laughs> but that really put me back into a stream of experience that I had I'd had all my life around words where... I always felt the adult wor world was using words in a way that were abstracted away from 
the physical experience of of what the word meant. You know, when you think of a child, when they first hear the word door, it's not an abstract word that exists separate from their own bodies. In that word is the actual physical experience of the door itself. And uh, I always felt this very, very strongly in my growing. I grew up in a in a linguistic frontier, actually, between Ireland and the north of England. And uh, the north of England is very different than the received identity that we think of when we when we think of Downton Abbey or we think of Jane mm. Austen. You know, that's southern England. It's very hierarchical. It's very distant socially. And the north of England is actually has more of a Scandinavian influence from the Viking settlements that were there. It's very egalitarian, and people mm. are really, really straight with you. As, uh, as they say in Yorkshire, they say nothing until they say everything <laughs> <laughs> about you and your flaws and how you can put yourself right. <laughs> so I had that on one side of the house, you know, with these Yorkshire earthy vowel sounds, you know. Very short sentences. If a se- if a story is told, it's told exactly the same. You know, my uncle Tom would say to my father, Jim, tell that story about when you were driving up that hill towards Scarborough. You got out at the top. You went into the pub. This fellow said to you, and you said back to him. And my dad would say, Well, we were driving up this hill. We stopped at the top of the hill. We went in the pub. The fellow said to me, and I said, and you were actually. It was a kind of a ritual re investigation of what had happened, but you didn't expect it to be any different. Mm. On the other side of the house was this very different lyrical use of language, you know? It was, it was all Holy Saint Mary and Joseph tonight, the holy mortal, shame of it and all the saints in heaven. And, it was, and, and a story was never told the same way. Mm. Uh, my mother, I never heard my mother tell the same story. I had about five parallel childhoods for her. Hmm. So I started to understand quite early that you could inhabit language you know, in very, very different ways, and that language could live in your body in a way in which it could, could open up different worlds to you. And, you know, later on I heard, or I read, the great philosopher Wittgenstein, you know, say, you cannot enter any world for which you do not have the language. You cannot enter any world for which you do not have the language. And so I felt like I was privileged living at this frontier, and I could morph my accent. I still do, actually. It's quite disturbing to to Irish people when, mm. when I morph into Irish, <laughs> the Irish accent from my mother. But it's entirely natural, yes. And uh, so I have three accents, which is a kind of, re- or four, I received English from college, my Yorkshire dialect, which is a full dialect, actually, and then Irish, uh, the Irish accent, and then my present kind of Americanized Yorkshire Irish pronunciation. <laughs> so mm. I've always been interested in language and the way that people learn words, actually. If you learn the word door when you're learning French now, as a, an adult, you learn it as an abstract. You see the English word on one side, you see the French word on the other, la porte, you know. And uh, you don't have it in your physical body. 
well, many of us as adults learn words, you know, like regret, like alone, in its deeper sense, you know, as abstracts. So the attempt of this book was to go back to the physical and etymological root of the word, you know. And the et etymology of a word, of course, is uh, is its root in the past, how it was first used, yeah, and what it meant when it was first physically expressed, almost as a surprise in the society or the language. And so I felt there was tremendous solace in the way that words could be used from their uh, their original meaning, that regret could actually be a kind of faculty for living more positively into the future, actually. Mm. With honest, deep regret, yeah, you might treat a grandson with more patience and time than you did your own son, whose boyhood you might have missed mm. because of your own involvement in your growing life. Yeah. So regret as a frontier with the future. And it's really actually quite remarkable to actually choose things out in your life that you would regret deeply. If you were ever a bully at school, even for just a moment, you know, to choose out that moment and to see how it still lives in your body. And it almost always puts you in a sphere of generosity towards anyone who is being bullied around you at the moment, you know. And in many ways, you start to look to redeem yourself from that moment. So I found it, I found it very, very useful indeed to actually think of moments in my life that I deeply regret and use them as a pair of eyes and ears for paying attention to my future. Mm, well, that's beautiful. Uh, well, so you, mm. we've put your your work in the practice section of waking up instead of the theory section, and this confuses a few people because there's often an assumption that meditation practice requires silence or mostly silence, or that yes. spoken instruction is meant to merely introduce the next chapter of silence. But that really isn't the case, or at least it isn't the case with what I would consider to be real meditation. Uh, and there's certainly a relationship between yes. the, the power of words and the power of silence. And so what I've recommended that people do is simply listen to your readings in, in the same frame of mind in which they would meditate and just let your thoughts replace their own, which is what happens whenever we read or, or listen to someone read. But it is possible to recognize the nature of mind just as clearly while contemplating someone else's thoughts. So it's, it's really in, the, in that spirit that uh, we offer these, these new readings in the app. Well, I think you said that beautifully because uh, the object in meditation and all of our contemplative disciplines is silence, but it, really that silence is in order for you to perceive something other than yourself, mm. or what you've arranged as yourself, to actually perceive this frontier between what you call a self and what you call 
other than yourself, whether that's a person or a landscape. Yeah. So one of the greatest arts of poetry is actually to create silence through attentive speech. Speech that says something in such a way that it appears as a third frontier between you and the world yeah, and invites you into a deeper and more generous sense of your own identity and the ide the identity of the world so i think poetry is is the verbal art form by by which we can actually create silence so with that as preamble let's uh launch into the first chapter here on friendship and uh, then we'll we'll come back to discuss it friendship Friendship is a mirror to presence and a testament to forgiveness. Friendship not only helps us to see ourselves through another's eyes, but can be sustained over the years only with someone who has repeatedly forgiven us for our trespasses, as we must find it in ourselves to forgive them in turn. A friend knows our difficulties and shadows and remains in sight, a companion to our vulnerabilities more than our triumphs when we are under the strange illusion that we do not need them. A friend knows our difficulties and shadows and remains in sight, a companion to our vulnerabilities more than our triumphs when we are under the strange illusion that we do not need them. An undercurrent of real friendship is a blessing exactly because its elemental form is rediscovered again and again through understanding and mercy. All friendships of any length are based on a continued mutual forgiveness. Without tolerance and mercy, all friendships die. Without tolerance and mercy, all friendships die. In the course of the years, a close friendship will always reveal the shadow in the other as much as ourselves. To remain friends, we must know the other and their difficulties, and even their sins, and encourage the best in them, not through critique, but through addressing the better part of them, the leading creative edge of their incarnation, thus subtly discouraging what makes them smaller, less generous, less of themselves. Friendship is the great hidden transmuter of all relationships. It can transform a troubled marriage, make honorable a professional rivalry, make sense of heartbreak and unrequited love and become the newly discovered ground for a mature parent-child relationship. The dynamic of friendship is almost always underestimated as a constant force in human life. A diminishing circle of friends is the first terrible diagnostic of a life in deep trouble, of overwork, of too much emphasis on a professional identity, of forgetting who will be there when our armoured 
personalities run into the inevitable natural disasters and vulnerabilities found in even the most ordinary existence. Friendship transcends disappearance. An enduring friendship goes on after death, the exchange only transmuted by absence, the relationship advancing and maturing in a silent, internal, conversational way, even after one half of the bond has passed on. But no matter, but no matter the medicinal virtues of being a true friend, or sustaining a long, close relationship with another, the ultimate touchstone of friendship is not improvement, neither of the self nor of the other. The ultimate touchstone of friendship is witness. The privilege of having been seen by someone and the equal privilege of being granted the sight of the essence of another, to have walked with them and to have believed in them, and sometimes just to have accompanied them for however brief a span on a journey impossible to accomplish alone. But no matter the medicinal virtues of being a true friend, or sustaining a long, close relationship with another, the ultimate touchstone of friendship is not improvement, neither of the self nor of the other. The ultimate touchstone of friendship is witness. The privilege of having been seen by someone, and the equal privilege of being granted the sight of the essence of another, to have walked with them, and to have believed in them, and sometimes just to have accompanied them, for however brief a span, on a journey impossible to accomplish alone. Friendship was begun after waking from a, a very, very realistic dream, a dream in which I'd been with a very, very close friend, a friend who had passed away. But in the dream, he was alive again with all of the joy of discovering he was actually still alive. And we were uh, in a car, and uh, it was an open-top car, and we were driving across the Golden Gate Bridge, actually, with the sun going down on one side and the moon on the other. And we had our arms round each other's shoulders, and we were laughing and telling jokes. And we were also laughing about all the ways that we had consciously or unconsciously insulted and hurt each other over the years, and how we'd been good enough to forgive each other. And waking out of that dream and the joy of that dream and the forgiveness of that dream brought me to understand something of the essence of what it means to be a witness and a forgiving witness at that for a good friend. So, friendship. I love this uh, contemplation on friendship. This is now, we're recording this at the, what one hopes is the tail end of a global pandemic where many of us have spent a year being less social than perhaps we've exactly. ever been in our lives. So, I, you know, I feel keenly the importance of friendship and how imperfectly I have maintained my own in this context. And so just one point you make here about the, the nature of friendship is that it 
does function by a different dynamics than any other relationship. The companionship is, is, as you put it, to our vulnerabilities more than our triumphs. The face of our lives that we show to a friend is the face that we often busily conceal in every other social encounter. Friendship is characterized, yeah, real friendship is characterized by a total absence of pretense. And uh, that's an interesting boundary to discover. And I guess we could just take a, a few moments to reflect on what demarcates friendship from other forms of acquaintance with people. I mean, when, when does someone become a friend? And how do you know that has actually been accomplished? Yes, uh, Montaigne, the great uh, French essayist, who really began the form for us, actually, he said that that real friendship is very, very rare, partly because it's this, it's, it, it comes to us in the same way that a good marriage comes to us, which is also very, very rare. And a good marriage and a good friendship is, is a product of our willingness to be fully vulnerable, but also to find the right person with whom to be fully vulnerable. And in marriage and in friendship, and you can have a kind of friendship in marriage, and you can have a form of marriage in friendship, actually, a kind of commitment over the years, you find that the relationship advances along the axis of your mutual vulnerability, rather than along the sense of trying to impress through your powers and your invulnerability. Mm. And so the lovely thing about friendship is that it's constantly asking us to be forgiving, both of the mistakes we make ourselves in the friendship. You will always say the wrong thing to the, at the wrong time to your friend over the years, partly on purpose because you meant to tell them and you couldn't quite do it, but then it, it, out it comes one day. And mm. they have to, often they, were, they might go away for a while, yeah, and to lick their wounds. But if the friendship is still alive, it's, if it is a friendship of years, by definition, they have come back to you, yeah, and they have forgiven you. And you, ha you have then to forgive yourself, and you have to find a way to actually include it in the conversation at the same time. So it's lovely the way that a long friendship is, is based on mutual forgiveness of one's sins towards each other. And the other lovely thing about friendship is, is, that, is that a good friend looks at the best in you and remembers what they were first drawn by and what they were first impressed by and knows you in your worst uh, when you're not living up to your possibilities and encourages you in your very, very best. Yeah. There's nothing as good for your own sanity when you're going through your own difficulties, and especially people who start to hate themselves you know, for various reasons, to have a good friend who sees you through different eyes, who sees the leading 
edge of your maturation in a way and through their eyes brings your eyes to rest on it too so i've had a number of really really close male friends through my life i'm just at the stage in my life where i now have really really good female friends too but uh i have a good circle of half a dozen friends around the world most of whom i spend time either in the mountains or talking over literary and philosophical or both matters yeah and i have i've had two incredibly close friends one who's passed away with whom i strangely still have a very very powerful relationship hmm. you know i i began this little disquisition talking about montaigne who you know, lived you know in the 1600s and uh, late 1500s and uh he lost his close friend etienne de la boetie when they were both quite young but in many ways he kept up an intellectual and philosophical and almost physical relationship with him after his death mm. and this is one of the remarkable things about true friendship is that it does transcend disappearance it transcends mortality and death i often think that you have as many conversations with the person you have lost who was close to you after they've gone as you had before they passed away and i often think in the case you mm. know of of <laughs> john o'donohue who's a friend who i lost that i actually have the possibility of winning arguments now that i couldn't yeah, right. while exactly. he was still alive <laughs> because <laughs> I can always have the last word and shut off the dialogue. Yeah. But um there's always a sense actually in a really long and really loyal friendship of mortality actually that one of you will be gone before the other. And there's a strange way especially with with John who is also a speaker, a remarkable speaker he was from the west of ireland he was fluent in philosophical german he was fluent in irish he had a bird of paradise vocabulary i often think that i begin a sentence and then he ends it while i'm on stage you know <laughs> and, uh, or vice versa i'll remember something he said and begin with that thought and uh, and then carry it on myself so there's this amazing invisible and very physical sense of inheritance from a heartfelt and powerful friendship. Mm, that's beautiful. Yeah, so it's also mm. interesting the way friendship reveals the boundaries of the self and for instance I one often finds it difficult to be charitable to oneself and so much of our self-talk is frankly poisonous and it's never the sort of thing we would say to a friend and and one way of correcting for this is to just yes. consciously imagine you know how you would treat your friend in this circumstance where you are currently lacerating yourself with self-judgment and a door to compassion swings open effortlessly once you put the the lens of friendship over it rather than the your default relationship to your yourself and your and your failings that's very well said and it's really interesting to extend that thought to how you speak to yourself it's interesting that 
most of the dialogue we have with ourselves in the, in the mirror is uh, quite negative. Yeah. If you spoke to others the way you spoke to yourself in the mirror, you would never have yeah. another f- friend in <laughs> you your clear, life. Yeah. You clear your calendar rather quickly. Exactly, yeah. So it's really interesting. You know, we often think of meditation as being purely silence in order to make a friendship with this deeper sense of self and deeper sense of the world. But it's really interesting to think that you could actually practice a conversation with yourself that helped you to mature and helped in your own maturation. That you could practice holding a fruitful conversation with yourself. Yeah. I think there was actually one French philosopher who defined a philosopher as someone who could stand on a railway station platform waiting for the train for an hour and keep himself fully engaged with his own thoughts. Yeah. Uh, well, the only way you could do that is if it was leading towards larger and larger understandings. So to ask yourself the beautiful question and to be able to follow those questions and to extend what we recognize as self-compassion and to find a verbal way actually which is i think maybe as good a definition of poetry as any the art of overhearing yourself say things you didn't know you knew that you perhaps to begin with were actually afraid to want to know and that you allow yourself to understand so friendship with another always introduces us to friendship with the deeper underlying phenomena beneath the the surface self which is which is exactly what your your whole app mm-hmm. is 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 trying to invite people into i think well crossing the boundary into what one is willing to let oneself understand is a great segue into our next topic which is honesty Honesty is reached through the doorway of grief and loss. Honesty is reached through the doorway of grief and loss. Where we cannot go in our mind, our memory, or our body, is where we cannot be straight with another, with the world, or with ourselves. The fear of loss in one form or another, is the motivator behind all conscious and unconscious dishonesties. The fear of loss, in one form or another, is the motivator behind all conscious and unconscious dishonesties. All of us are afraid of loss, in all its forms. All of us, at times, are haunted or overwhelmed by the possibility of a disappearance and all of us, therefore, are one short step away from dishonesty. Every human being dwells intimately close to a door of revelation they are afraid to pass through. Honesty lies in understanding our close and necessary relationship with not wanting to hear the truth. Honesty lies in understanding our close a necessary relationship with not wanting to hear the truth. The ability to speak the truth is as much the ability to describe 
what it is like to stand in trepidation at this door, as it is to actually go through it and become that beautifully honest spiritual warrior equal to all circumstances we would like to become. Honesty is not the revealing of some foundational truth that gives us power over life or another or even the self. Honesty is not the revealing of some foundational truth that gives us power over life or another or even the self, but a robust incarnation into the unknown, unfolding vulnerability of existence, where we acknowledge how powerless we feel, how little we actually know, how afraid we are of not knowing, and how astonished we are by the generous measure of loss that is conferred upon even the most average life. Honesty is grounded in humility and indeed in humiliation, and in admitting exactly where we are powerless. Honesty is not found in revealing the truth. Honesty is not found in revealing the truth, but in understanding how deeply afraid of it we are. To become honest is in effect to become fully and robustly incarnated into powerlessness. Honesty allows us to live with not knowing. We do not know the full story. We do not know where we are in that story. We do not know who is at fault or who will carry the blame in the end. Honesty is not a weapon to keep loss and heartbreak at bay. Honesty is the outer diagnostic of our ability to come to ground in reality, the hardest attainable ground of all, the place where we actually dwell, the living, breathing frontier, where there is no realistic choice between gain or loss. So you... Uh... You make the point that honesty is often a matter of admitting how little we know rather than merely landing again and again upon further truths. That's interesting. What, yes. how, how do you think of honesty as, as a sharing so much territory with a, a confession of ignorance? Well, you know, um, just by seeing the way the word honesty is used as a kind of weapon in everyday conversation, when someone says, can I be honest with you? You should always say no. <laughs> because <laughs> they have a piece of ammunition which they want to fire at you, yeah? And uh, to my mind, the, uh, the invitation to knowledge needs, needs to be more of an invitation. So I think the, the, the pivotal line in the, whole, in the whole essay is honesty lies in understanding our close and necessary relationship with not wanting to hear the truth. Yeah. And uh, it's that axis of vulnerability again. It's honesty is grounded in, in humility. Yeah. So this is where you do, if you want someone to be honest with you, you want it in the context of friendship. 
I always remember a good Irish friend of mine saying when I was I was starting to explain something that I'd done that that had been misinterpreted, and I got halfway through the sentence. I remember we were on a mountain in uh, in the Burren of North Clare, and he turned round and he said, "Never explain." He said, "He said your enemies won't believe you, and your friends don't need it." Hmm. It was the most beautiful thing to say. And uh, the most inviting thing. And that led me into a deeper dialogue with myself. Yeah. So the other pivotal sentence in the essay is, honesty is grounded in humility, and indeed in humiliation, and in admitting exactly where we are powerless. Yeah. Honesty is not found in revealing the truth, but in understanding how deeply afraid of it we are. Yeah. And and then it's followed by to become honest is an effect to become fully and robustly incarnated into powerlessness. Yeah. I mean, I work a lot. I have worked a lot in the corporate world. And uh, I always say that real conversations always happen along this axis of vulnerability, even in in the most uh, the most powerful hierarchies in the in the business world. And the foundational axis of vulnerability, you know, in the hierarchy of a workplace is my, as a leader, simply admitting that I do not have all the answers. Mm. I've only got one pair of eyes, one pair of ears. I've only got one imagination and one intellect. Yeah. But in conversation with you, in making an invitation to you, I can double and triple and quadruple and multiply all of those faculties by creating a conversation that's attentive to our mutual future. But of course, that kind of vulnerability means a giving up of my protected place in a hierarchy. So uh, honesty is always, you know, the unspoken measure of integrity in a workplace. Yeah. But it's also the un it's also the unspoken measure of integrity in a marriage or a or a friendship yeah yeah well it, re it really is an integrity is is a measure of how closely what you're willing to have exposed in public and what is true of you in private are in in register with one another if you have a vast landscape of private preoccupation which you would never dare to reveal to others you know, that, that really is the formula for a complete lack of integrity. I'm, I'm interested in this discomfort we feel around the truth, right? Whether it's the discomfort in speaking the truth to others or in knowing a truth about ourselves, that really does seem to be yet another place where the, the, this boundary of self can be discerned. Yes. I mean, that is the, that is the tension that is the this feeling of self and this feeling of of living in in jeopardy under the gaze of others or you know under the gaze of reality yes. itself yes and it's always the giving up of protection and immunity so of course there are parts of the mind that uh have evolved and rightly so to protect us and to create immunity and we've survived because of them but of course as you know, you know, I've heard a lot of your 
talks and a lot of your invitations you make through your various talks, you know, to understanding the deeper, more movable, more conversational identity. We don't want to lose those powers of protection, of recognizing what is a threat or what is other than us. Yeah. They're part of our ability to survive in an evolutionary scale. But they can't provide us any sense of real happiness or presence. Mm. Yeah. So we have to go to a different part of the mind whose primary goal is not protection, but meeting and presence and what looks like an incredible form of generosity and beauty as its gift. Yeah. And this is this other you know, remarkable flow that's spoken to in all of our great contemplative traditions. And this deeper flowing, more conversational, more generous mind is actually able to call on the strategic mind for protection and for saying no and for saying this is other than me and is bad for me. Yeah? So one of the great fears, as you know, is that we we it, when we when we go into this no self we will lose all sense of discernment and we will lose all sense of protection yeah. and it's only with maturing into the practice that we understand that we can call on those qualities yeah but not have them as the central arbiter of our identity so i do think that the invitation to honesty is the invitation to this to this deeper undoing, actually, this deeper identity which is, is able to break through these boundaries by what looks like on the surface a kind of robust vulnerability. Mm. Well, the topics of identity and vulnerability and achieving anything like security and happiness in this life lead us naturally to our next word, which is ambition. Ambition. Ambition is a word that lacks ambition. Ambition is frozen desire, the current of a vocational life immobilized and over-concretized to set unforgiving goals. Ambition may be essential for the young, but becomes the essential obstacle of any attempt at a mature life. Ambition abstracts us from the underlying elemental nature of the creative conversation, while providing us the cover of a target that becomes false through over-description, over-familiarity, or too much understanding. The ease of having an ambition is that it can be explained to others. The very disease of ambition is that it can be so easily explained to others. What is worthy of a life's dedication does not want to be known by us in ways that diminish its actual sense of presence. Everything true to itself, has its own secret language and an internal intentionality with a secret surprising flow, even 
to the person who supposedly puts it all in motion. Ambition ultimately withers all secrets in its glare before those secrets have had time to come to life from within and then thwarts the generosity and maturity that ripens the discourse of a lifetime's dedication to a work. We may direct the beam of ambition to illuminate a certain corner of the future world, but ultimately it can reveal to us only those dreams with which we have already become familiar. Ambition, left to itself, like a Rupert Murdoch, always becomes tedious. Its only object, the creation of larger and larger empires of control. But a true vocation calls us out beyond ourselves, breaks our heart in the process, and then humbles, simplifies, and enlightens us about the hidden core nature of the work that enticed us in the first place. We find that all along we had what we needed from the beginning, and that in the end we have returned to its essence, an essence we could not understand until we had undertaken the journey. No matter the self-conceited importance of our labors, we are all compost for worlds we cannot yet imagine. No matter the self-conceited importance of our labors, we are all compost for worlds we cannot yet imagine. Ambition takes us toward that horizon, but not over it. That line will always recede before our controlling hands. But a calling, a calling is a conversation, a conversation between our physical bodies, our work, our intellects and imaginations, and a new world that is itself the territory we seek. A vocation always includes the specific, heart-rending way we will fail at our attempt to live our lives fully. A vocation always includes the specific, heart-rending way we will fail at our attempt to live our lives fully. A true vocation always metamorphoses both ambition and failure into compassion and understanding for others. Ambition takes willpower, and a constant application of energy to stay on a perceived bearing, but a serious vocational calling demands a constant attention to the unknown gravitational field that surrounds us, and from which we recharge ourselves, and from which we recharge ourselves, as if breathing from the atmosphere of possibility itself. A life's work is not a series of stepping stones. A life's work is not a series of stepping stones onto which we calmly place our feet, but more like an ocean crossing, where there is no path, only a heading, 
a direction, in conversation with the elements. Looking back, we see the wake we have left as only a brief, glimmering trace on the waters. Ambition is natural to the first steps of youth who must experience its essential falsity to know the larger reality that stands behind it. But held on to too long, and especially in eldership, it always comes to lack surprise, turns the last years of the ambitious into a second childhood, and makes the once successful into an object of pity. The authentic watermark, the authentic watermark running through the background of a life's work is an arrival at generosity. And as a mark of that generosity, delight in the hopes of the young and the giving away to them, not only of rewards that may have been earned, but the reward in the secret itself, the core artistry that made the journey a journey. Perhaps the greatest legacy we can leave from our work is not to instill ambition in others, though this may be the first way we describe its arrival in our life, but the passing on of a sense of sheer privilege, of having found a road, a way to follow, and then having been allowed to walk it, often with others, with all its difficulties and minor triumphs, the underlying primary gift of having been a full participant in the conversation. Perhaps the greatest legacy we can leave from our work is not to instill ambition in others, though this may be the first way its arrival in their life is described, but the passing on of a sense of sheer privilege of having found a road, a way to follow, and then having been allowed to walk it, often with others, with all its difficulties and minor triumphs, the underlying primary gift of having been a full participant in the conversation. Ambition. I love this chapter here, and it's... Um it really focuses me on on this paradox of being and becoming you know the more you you get into the game of uh, you know understanding your own mind and the mechanics of your own unhappiness your your capacity for unhappiness and learn how to unwind that and come to rest in the present moment you see this tension again and again, between being and becoming. And, and ambition obviously puts its emphasis on the becoming part here. And you know, history has furnished us with endless examples of people who have fully realized their ambitions. Uh, and yet, genuine happiness, or even a, a semblance of order in their lives, has proved totally elusive. I, I think of people like you know, recently uh, there was a documentary re released on Tiger Woods, which is fascinating. It's a, a fascinating document. Yes. As many people know, he was probably the most talented golfer who's ever lived and admired by 
you know, at the peak of his fame and, and powers, admired by more or less every sentient person on earth who was even dimly aware of his accomplishments, and yet he couldn't achieve even basic contentment in his day-to-day life with all the predictably chaotic results unhappily. Yes. So um, it is just fascinating that the things we think we want, you know, even the most grandiose versions of those things, when attained, prove such an unreliable basis for happiness. Uh, that is, really is the punchline of, of existence, and it's, it's framed in various ways in our contemplative traditions. But we learn this, this lesson again and again and again and again until uh, one hopes it finally becomes indelible. But I love the way you, you have dissected ambition here and, 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 and just revealed that the, there's something always stultifying about it, even in its realization. You say, left to itself, it always becomes tedious, which is a, a word I, I love. But maybe you can, you can say more about this distinction you draw between ambition and a true vocation or calling. Yes. Yeah, I began this essay because uh, I'd always been very suspicious of the word ambition, partly because of the way I'd witnessed it used as a weapon against young people, as a word of control, you know, that you would follow the path I followed into my own form of uninterestingness. (laughs) 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 You know, to become this uninteresting person who has lots of money and a swimming pool and a yacht. And, uh, you know, it's interesting that almost all of the billionaires I've ever met in my life are are really awful people. (laughs) And apart from one, one exception, I've got a wonderful and remarkable billionaire in my life. And it's partly, it's exactly because he's an artist. Mm. And that artistry is more important than anything he has gained through it, that he has stayed as a real mensch, you know. Mm. He's uh, he's a person who cares about his family, his people around him. He has a, a network of friendships. He's a his artistry has kept him alive, and his artistry is representative of what we're actually trying to point to when we speak about ambition, which is this relationship with the unknown. And the relationship with the unknown way that you're going to find yourself in a new dispensation, a new emancipation, a new form of maturity when you arrive in it. And it's going to arrive through your filmmaking, through your dance, through your sculpture, through your speech, through your artful creation of a certain kind of technology which invites people into a deeper part of themselves, yeah. Through your poetry, yeah. And the art form itself becomes the arbiter of whether you're staying true to what you're about. Yeah. I remember in my 30s, uh, when I first began this work in a public sense, I, was, I had the invitation to become a guru, really. There was, there was quite a community of people who gathered around mm. my work who really wanted me to become a spiritual teacher in a, in a kind of new age way, I suppose. Yeah, And uh, I remember turning away from it and knowing that the poetry was much more important than I was, yeah? and the tradition of poetry. 
And that was the only arbiter of what I had to give. And that I could be actually a flawed sinner of a human being. And if I wrote good poetry, it would still be a gift to others. And I didn't need to set myself as the center of the art form. As long as I set the poetry to lead myself and to lead others into this this new territory of understanding, then I had something that was real. Yeah. Mm. So um, I think I say in the essay also that it's it's understandable and merciful to understand the necessity for ambition when you're young, if you don't, especially in the masculine psyche. Um, which is all about creating this perimeter. This is me and this is not me. You know, this is my team. That's the other team. This is my achievement. This is not your achievement. Mm. You know, that's the, the magnified form of the competitive masculine psyche. So it's understandable that, especially in young males, you would want to talk about ambition. Yeah. But as long as you follow that ambition to the place where you come to this radical undoing, where you realize what you thought you were about was actually only a surface representation of the true treasure, yeah. the true pearl that you were, you were actually searching for all along. Mm. I never went into poetry to create an organization, you know, but I've got, I, 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 just the Yorkshire side of me is so practical that <laughs> it can't, can't help itself, you know. So I have this organization, four or five people, and I had this lovely moment on an airplane somewhere over the last few years where I said, what if none of this was about you, David? What if it was all about creating this creative milieu for these people and creating a good living for all of these people mm. who were able to s support their families while feeling as if they were part of giving this gift of poetry. Yeah. Mm. What if it was actually about that? And it was really, that was a real moment of, uh, of undoing for me, whether it was true or not, actually. It was certainly part of the ecology of truth that, that I was coming to. Yeah, I've had a similar epiphany around waking up as well, and it's getting out of the way and realizing that it's certainly not about any kind of personal focus on me as a teacher of anything. You know, I, I mean, I am, I am actively teaching the, the most important things I think I've ever learned in the app, but I have neatly sidestepped the the role of guru, uh, really based on the availability of this technology, right? I mean, if I were holding yes. retreats or, you know, propping myself up in front of large audiences regularly to discuss these things, it, it would necessitate a, a specific role relationship with, with an audience, which, um, which I'm happy to not invoke. And the app allows me a way of not doing that while still delivering the goods insofar as I can. And so it's, it's a happy accident here. Uh, and you know, and yes, you, you and, can do the same uh, in in this context, which is wonderful. Yes, and uh, it's interesting coming out of that realization that you've had the way the pandemic has actually magnified that dynamic. You know, when you finish a talk on Zoom, there's no 
there's no standing ovation. (laughs) (laughs) You just, you just click there, leave the meeting button and there you are, you know, and you walk into the kitchen. So you have to, in a way, you have to uh, congratulate yourself (laughs) in a way that's, uh, that's both generous and self-examinatory at the same Mm. time, you know, where, where was I false? Yeah. Uh, Where was I real? And uh, did I give the gift? Did I give the gift of my art form during that time? So uh, the invitation in the pandemic is to go deeper into this, this self, you know, which I speak about, this aloneness that I speak about in the essay alone, the aloneness that actually leads you to this meeting with so many other forms of of life that are other than yourself. Well, I think we'll close there. I want to talk about aloneness as well. So now let's, uh, let's contemplate this word that has so many resonances, alone. Yes. Alone is a word that stands by itself, carrying the austere, solitary beauty of its own meaning, even as it is spoken to another. It is a word that can be felt at the same time as an invitation to depth and as an imminent threat, as in all alone, with its returned echo of abandonment. Alone is a word that rings with a strange finality, especially when contained in that haunting aggregate, left all alone, as if the state, once experienced, begins to define and engender its own inescapable world. The first step in spending time alone is to admit how afraid of it we are. Being alone is a difficult discipline, a beautiful and difficult sense of being solitary is always the ground from which we step into a new and contemplative intimacy with the unknown. But the first portal of aloneness is often experienced as a gateway to alienation, grief, and abandonment. To find ourselves alone, or to be left alone, is an ever-present, fearful, and abiding human potentiality, of which we are often unconsciously and deeply afraid. To be alone for any length of time is to shed an outer skin. The body is inhabited in a different way when we are alone than when we are with others. Alone, we live in our bodies as a question rather than a statement. To inhabit Silence in our aloneness is to stop telling the story altogether. To begin with, aloneness always leads to rawness and vulnerability, to a fearful simplicity, to not recognizing and to not knowing, to the wish to find any company other than that not knowing, unknown self looking back at us in the silent mirror. 
One of the elemental dynamics of self-compassion is to understand our deep reluctance to be left to ourselves. Aloneness begins in puzzlement at our own reflection. Aloneness begins in puzzlement at our own reflection, transits through awkwardness and even ugliness at what we see, and culminates one appointed hour or day in a beautiful, unlooked-for surprise, at the new complexion beginning to form the slow knitting together of an inner life, now exposed to air and light. To be alone is not necessarily to be absent from the company of others. The radical step is to let ourselves alone, to seize the berating voice that is constantly trying to interpret and force the story from too small and too complicated a perspective. Even in company, a sense of imminent aloneness is a quality that can be cultivated. Aloneness does not need a desert or a broad ocean or a quiet mountain. Human beings have the ability to feel the rawest, most intimate forms of aloneness while living closely with others or beset by the busyness of the world. They can feel alone around a meeting table, in the happiest, most committed marriage, or aboard a crowded ship with a full complement of crew. The difficulty of being alone may be felt most keenly in the most intimate circumstances, in the darkness of the marriage bed, one centimeter and a thousand miles apart, or in the silence around a tiny, crowded kitchen table. But to feel alone in the presence of others is also to understand the singularity of our human existence, whilst experiencing the deep physical current that binds us to others, whether we want that binding or no. Aloneness can measure togetherness, even through a sense of distance. At the beginning of the 21st century, to feel alone or want to be alone is deeply unfashionable. To admit to feeling alone is to reject and betray others, as if they are not good company and do not have entertaining, interesting lives of their own to distract us, and to actually seek to be alone is a radical act. To want to be alone is to refuse a certain kind of conversational hospitality and thus turn to another. Another door, another kind of welcome, not necessarily defined by human vocabulary. It may be that time away from a work an idea of ourselves, or a committed partner, is the very essence of appreciation for the other, for the work, and for the life of another. To be able to let them alone as we let ourselves alone, to live something that feels like a choice again, to find ourselves alone as a looked-for 
achievement, not a state to which we have been condemned. Alone was written in the heart of the African bush. I'd been left behind at the camp by everyone else rushing out to see a possible herd of something interesting migrating past. But for some reason, I had the strongest intuition just to stay behind and to write. And once I'd gone through that initial awkward sense of missing out with everyone else, I found I was drinking from a very, very deep well indeed. And I was so happy with myself for having said no. I felt as if I had done myself some good. And out of that, I actually wrote this essay alone. Picking up from our last chapter, Ambition, there, there, was, there was one moment where you talk about this return to where we started and, and seeing it anew. And I think I detected in there an, at least an echo of a line from T.S. Eliot in The Four Quartets, where he talks about the, the end of all of our exploring yes. will be to arrive where we started and, and know the place for the first time. Yes. And what we know in each of those moments is increasingly what it's like in our own company, right? I mean, just the nature of consciousness itself. And yet this concept of being alone, you know, whether in, in real physical solitude or confronting the aloneness that we can experience even in the presence of others, it has this dual nature, which you point out. It is a, a source of fear and, as you put it, an invitation to depth and a gateway to grief and abandonment, which is what makes it so scary for people. So we're so vulnerable, or imagine that we're so vulnerable to solitude, and so many people associate it with really nothing other than oppression. I mean, this is one of the most fascinating yes. things for those of us who have spent any time on retreat and found it incredibly valuable and even blissful. We have that experience up against this knowledge that that solitary confinement is considered a torture the world over and, and is in fact a torture if, if your mind is such that it will be reliably tortured by it. How do you think about aloneness at this point and, and uh, this dual nature of, of it being the, the scariest thing for many people, even most people, and yet it is also the, the doorway to real epiphany? Yes, I think... Uh... It's very important, especially in this time of the pandemic, to when we're speaking about the treasures that are hidden in a nourishing sense of aloneness, to talk about how desperate it is to feel loneliness. Mm. And, uh, and there are so many lonely people in the world, whether there's a pandemic or not. And now, Present circumstances have really, really magnified that. I know in Japan, the, the suicide rate is uh, as multiplied, you know, especially among young women who are feeling isolated in society anyway, mm. yeah, and many living alone. So uh, it's uh, to feel lonely, you know, to feel 
the physical necessity for touch, for another's voice, for another's proximity, you know. This is a remarkable part of life and should not be underestimated. And I have another essay in the book actually on loneliness and the way it precipitates this sense of beautiful longing to meet what is other than you and necessary to you at the same time. But to talk about aloneness in the sense of nourishment, of letting yourself alone, you know. Other people, you know, will often, if they're feeling if they're feeling berated by us, they'll they'll say, Leave me alone, you know. And they need that. They wouldn't ask for it if they didn't need it, yeah. Well that that's an interesting point you make where it's to admit to feeling alone is a kind of affront to one's friends because it, it's almost a hostile statement that they are not good enough. They're not providing enough support. Yes. And to, to want to be alone, to seek to be alone, is also perceived as a quasi-hostile act. I mean, it's a kind of repudiation of, it is a repudiation of the company of one's friends, at least for a time. So the way in which the feeling of loneliness and a desire to return to the well of aloneness interacts with friendship and, and the, you know, everyone's claim upon your time and you're using others as a resource. It's, it's just interesting psychologically how that plays out. Yes. Yeah, I think it's, I think the ability to leave your friend alone in the best sense and to leave your partner, your spouse alone in a marriage or a committed relationship is one of the great tests of our maturity. Mm. It's actually one of the, one of the great virtues of the Irish psyche. Almost to a fault, actually, people are constantly leaving each other alone. <laughs> <in order to. laughs> yeah. And uh, just to be left yourself, to have your own thoughts, to speak, not to be at another person. It's one of the worst things in the Irish culture is to be at someone. And uh, so you leave them alone, but quite often to the detriment. You know? But there's a good way of leaving your wife, your husband, your partner to themselves. Yeah and letting them have their own life. There's a part of your, your partner, your husband, your wife, your partner, you can never know. Why? Because they don't even know it themselves. Yeah. That's why they actually need to be left alone, is to garner and deepen that relationship. Yeah. So in the same way, to be able to leave yourself alone. I mean, it's no use going off to a cabin by yourself in retreat, you know, if you're at yourself the whole time, if you carry mm. the same dialogue with you. Mm. To be able to take the sense of coercion, of besiegement, of something that's abstractly necessary away from you to what is physically immediate and necessary within you is is a remarkable transition yeah. and it's a kind of gentle uncovering and undoing a letting go and then the stepping through this fearful transition of not recognizing yourself yeah 
not recognizing who you're now encountering and then slowly getting to know a new friendship with this person inside you. So the threshold of aloneness in the sense of discomfort is almost like going out on a first date where you might feel awkward. You don't know what to say, where to put yourself or what to wear. (laughs) Mm. (laughs) uh, When you think about it, that's, I mean, that's another essay in the book is shyness. You know, that shyness Mm. is a hallway of presence. Yeah. You Mm. should not feel competent when you're first entering the hallway of aloneness. You should feel shy and you should feel awkward. You should, you should feel (laughs) as if you don't know how to hold the conversation because you're actually meeting the new you. And I think, as I said before in our previous conversation, you always meet the new you in the form of a stranger. And you should know that you always turn away from that stranger because you're afraid of them to begin with. And then the beauty of aloneness is that you get the time to turn your face back and start to begin the hesitant and awkward but ultimately fulfilling conversation with this person who you're now actually becoming that's i often think that most human beings are a good seven to ten years behind who they've actually become Hmm. they just haven't their strategic mind hasn't allowed hasn't caught up with the central the central imagination which has already arrived on the other side that's an interesting piece of code to add to one's thoughts I mean, it's a kind of algorithm I mean, you can ask yourself the question you know you know of yourself now you know if given seven more years of hindsight to bring to this moment who would you understand yourself to be now at this point in your life yes exactly that's a yeah. beautiful question yes yeah one of the ways uh, i have a poem about a place called coleman's bed and a bed in Ireland is a place where someone dwelt. And Coleman was one of these great Irish Christian Druid mystics, actually, mm-hmm. lived in the 6th century. And his place is still a place of pilgrimage. And, uh, and uh, after 13 years of going to this place, I wrote the poem called Coleman's Bed. And the culmination of the whole poem uh, is uh, is the understanding that you're here actually to become the ancestor of your future happiness. Mm. To become the ancestor of your. Yeah. Coleman has been the ancestor of so much good in the world because of his own life. Yeah. How could you be a person to whom your future self would come back as a pilgrim to visit? You know? All of us can think of moments in our life where we picked up that phone, we had the courageous conversation. We went out the door against all logic, you know, and we transformed our life. And you look back and you say, if I hadn't have done that in that moment, my life would be irredeemably impoverished. So the interesting question is, what could I do now whereby I would be the ancestor of my future happiness? Mm. What could I do today that my future self would come back and thank me for? Yeah, that's a that's a way of 
thinking about the relationship between one's past and and future selves, which I've actually recorded something, uh, some echo of that on the app recently in the moments feature. I don't know if you've you've heard these these moments that they're sixty to ninety seconds that interrupt people's day, and it's pretty clear that if you think of your the relationship between your present and future self as as one of of friendship again and you are the friend who can plant all the seeds that your future self will reap you realize that really there, there's no one in your life and may never be anyone in your life who is better placed to ensure the happiness of who you will one day be than the person you are now what you do and don't do yes, now exactly well said. is really the the greatest gift that anyone is going to bestow on this future person you'll 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 one day be so this is, comes down to everything from the formation of new habits to things you would learn to the friendships you tend to i mean just you know it's yes it's humbling and inspiring to reflect on that well, David, it's it's always a joy and a privilege to bring your voice to this audience, and um, lovely. I, from my own side, will commit to uh, looking more and more for excuses to to speak with you because I, I just I find it so edifying, and I know everyone listening does as well. So it's just th- thanks again for your time and and for the work you're doing, and uh, let's consider this a a guilty pleasure that we should uh, keep um, indulging because I love it. Yes, that experience you described is entirely mutual, so thank you very much. Mm-hmm.